Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced the signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, Forefront family. Welcome to another episode of the Forefront podcast, another bi-weekly roundup. The time just flies. I'm here with my co-host, Alex. Alex, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I think we are both busy and it seems that this is the way in bear markets. It's the time to build and you you trade the chaos for bull market hysteria for just putting your head down and building <laughs> in the bear market. So it, it never sleeps. Yes, yes. We we at Forefront, uh, friends, if you're not aware, we at Forefront have just recently launched season two and the season two contributor application is currently live. So we encourage you to join the Discord uh, server if you haven't already. And that application is pinned very visibly or you can visit our Twitter profile, Forefront underscore, to have a look at that application. We are looking for the best and the brightest minds to join us. So with that, Alex, let's jump right in. Uh, we usually do the social token segment on product, on new product and tooling first, but we don't have a lot of time today. So let's just skip right ahead to a really cool social token project. This is the Modern Billboard Collective. Very, very cool project. What's the tagline here? So the Modern Billboard Collective is a group of startups selling ad space on their websites. So thus far, you're saying, yawn, what's new about this? But let me keep going here. So this ad space, Alex, they're actually represented as NFTs that are freely tradable. So if you believe a website in the collective is going to succeed, let's say they're just starting out now, they're going to generate more traffic over time. You can buy a little piece of that future reputation of that future growth now in the form of this NFT lot and then resell it in the future. So chances are as the participating websites become more valuable, your lot, your NFT lot is going to be worth more. So, so many cool things about this. Uh, I'm looking forward to digging in, but I'm going to actually be pulling out some really nice pieces of information and excerpts from the Mirror article, from the Mirror post that they put out announcing this initiative. So the inspiration for this, Alex, was the million dollar homepage. Now this was created way back in 2005. And so this is a website that sold 1 million pixels for a dollar each. Now I remember in the back of my mind, my, my memory is in and out, Alex, these days, but I, I remember this and I remember reading this and going, oh yes, this happened. But so <laughs> this this website sold 1 million pixels for one each, $1 each. And the website eventually brought in more than a million dollars. So the interesting thing, Alex, is that every single time I'm jamming with, you know, my friends, my colleagues, especially on the Forefront core team, we're constantly doing this thing where we'll drop, you know, interesting ideas into the Discord and someone will eventually ask, well, what's the Web3 version of this? What's the Web3 version of this? Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly mm -hmm. hearing this question. So the Modern Billboard Collective actually asked themselves, what's the Web3 version of the million dollar homepage? And they came up with this home run. So quoting here from the Mirror piece, Zooming out, the key insight they write from the million-dollar homepage is that digital real estate can be very valuable. So they ask themselves, why start a website with the sole purpose of selling pixels on the lottery chance that it succeeds when we can apply the same logic to existing digital real estate? So in the physical real estate business, it's well known that value is driven primarily based on location, location, location. Invest in a thriving neighborhood, 
reap the upside. Well, the same logic should apply in digital spaces. And it's more than just domain squatting. By, by buying real estate on a startup's website, this is the equivalent, they're saying, of investing in a property in an up-and-coming neighborhood. So that's the thesis. And then they ask, well, why crypto? Why is crypto apt for this situation? And they say tokenization is absolutely perfect for this use case because combined with the other financial building blocks of Ethereum, they allow anyone to own and trade their lots in a way that is borderless and easy to transfer. And in addition, the NFT mechanism enables seamless, easy, perpetual royalties. And the companies here are monetizing collecting royalties every single time an NFT lot is resold, this becomes a new revenue stream that is possible because of the crypto economic protocols. Um, so we, I actually want to dive in a little bit, uh, Alex, into the existing ad products and the problems with them, because I think they handle this in, in a very elegant way. There's this quote here that I want to highlight, and they say, ad products typically only work once you have millions of eyeballs. But tokenization introduces a brand new dynamic. By combining the benefits of a billboard ad with the appreciation potential of an NFT, we're giving lot holders a unique way to support the companies they believe in, advertise their own projects, and retain significant upside potential. It's the benefits of advertising, the upside of an investment, and the feel-good vibes of patronage. So how does this work? The article breaks it down. What do you get if you're a startup in the collective? And right now the collective is just startup-y, CoinVise, and Kudos, just three to begin with, but they do have open applications for other uh, projects to, to join the collective. So what's the, the value add for the startups? First, you add a billboard to your site. You decide where to place it, but you have to commit to keeping it somewhere on your site. The billboard is broken down into 48 lots, each of them represented by an NFT. You then invite your community to invest in and to buy lots. And this essentially entitles them to upload any media they want and link out to a URL of their choice. So it can potentially be a way to drive traffic to the website, the Twitter profile, et cetera, of the, the owner of that NFT. And of course, they can resell the lot at any time. And websites, websites get a percentage of the sale of any future lots in the secondary market. So for the lot holders, that's the people buying the NFT lots, they're saying, we've launched the billboards with three early startups that they, they believe are going to be super, super hot in terms of amount of traffic over time. So you can bid on, you can buy the billboard lots from any of these websites. A grid lot is represented as an NFT. You can keep your lot indefinitely or you can sell it anytime. And again, chances are the participating websites will become more valuable and generate more traffic. So I think it's quite interesting if you look at this, if you look at this thesis, and I kind of want to ask you what you think about it. So the thesis here is um, making money by owning a piece of digital real estate that is appreciating in value. So they draw this analogy, Alex, with it being uh, very similar to the physical real estate world, right? Value is driven by location. The same logic applies in the digital world. What do you think about that logic? And of course, they do say in the mirror piece that they're just at the beginning of their journey. There's not a lot of utility. There's not a lot of things that you mm. can do right now with your lot. 
You can just put up the media, you can point it to the website, but they say they they really want to explore what other things can be done with it. But given how the situation Mm -hmm. is right now currently, Alex, what do you think about this analogy that they're drawing? That physical real estate, location, 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 that the same logic applies to the digital world? Well, first, I'm not too worried about the limited amount of utility right now, because we've seen a lot of these projects release a foundation, and it's almost more advantageous to let the community decide the direction it goes in. So I I think that's smart for the most part is not to have it too fully formed in their mind and pigeonholing people into an idea. Um, I I think the concept is sound there. I I have a few question marks in my mind for this. So first is like the difference between physical real estate and digital real estate. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why physical real estate is so valuable is it's finite. Where in the, yes. the, the metaverse, and I see this with different metaverse projects, you can create and in some ways delete these, these territories. And mm-hmm. that lack of finality and total amount of um, you know, space can, can be a factor here in the price. So, I, I mean, Star Atlas is a great example here where I, I think this was the game. There, there might have been another game that was similar, but you could basically buy billboard space in space. You could like buy satellites in space. And as you're traveling around in the game, then you would have advertising space within the game and own that plot. But the thing is, Mm. if no one adopts that universe, well, then it's not as sound of an investment. So I think that's the big question mark here. And the, the major hurdle that this needs to overcome is this concept needs to get adopted by enough people that it becomes kind of the norm. And it could add a ton of value there. I, I think after that hurdle, this is something I thought a lot about when I first started in my journey through Web3 is, hey, I, da- data is super valuable. And if we're basically giving ownership back to the individuals of their own data, well, then mm-hmm. what the hell are all these companies that their lifeblood is data and selling that data for advertisement? Yes. What are they going to do? What does the future yes. of advertisement do? So this it's finally coming to the point where people are thinking of these ideas and coming up with, in my opinion, a good solution here where you own the ad space and the um, the owner of the website, instead of shilling it out to something like Google ads, and then Google ads will use all that data and use lookalike audiences and all this stuff to show random different ads, depending on who's visiting by irresponsibly using people's data. Well, here's, here's a new way for the business to have a little bit more of a say in what goes mm-hmm. up on their website, have a say there, and have more of a partnership, I think, with the uh, with the spaces and the ads that one of the question marks for me is since there's a resale market here what freedom or what what control does the business who's hosting this space this billboard space what do they have mm. in the resale market because what if it gets resold to someone who wants to advertise something that the business doesn't really want to advertise mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. i, w- I mm-hmm. wonder about that um, mm-hmm. the, the other thing they mentioned here, and again, this is super, super early. So these are just question marks in my mind that people might want to be thinking about as this gets developed out more. One of the other things here is they mentioned to the businesses, you must commit to keeping the billboard on your site. Yes. And my immediate question is what if they don't like what, what's holding them accountable to that? Is there a legal agreement mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. or, uh, is it, I don't know. I don't know what's kind of holding them accountable to yes. that. So they just sell the space and then. <laughs> exit and say, see ya. Yes. Yes. Or you can imagine, uh, if, if that there really isn't a lot of, like you said, uh, nuance or direction in that, in that requirement, but you can imagine if it were, if it were to be the scenario where you suddenly have people buying up lots and they're, they're advertising and they're pointing to websites that are either against the interests of, 
of the the website or or whatever that you could see mm-hmm. them perhaps moving the the billboard to a very just you know a very discreet uh, a very subtle hidden part of the website in, in which case <laughs> is that still kind of in agreement with the uh, exactly you know, it's yeah there's there's so many questions here of course we're projecting into the future but I I liked um, I liked the sort of diversity that I saw when I looked at startupy so Coinvise. I, I think I just looked at their billboard uh, a couple hours ago, and I, I don't think that there were a lot of lots that had been picked up there. Uh, kudos, mm-hmm. quite a bit of lots have been sold. Startupy is the only one of the original three that have completely sold out. There, there are there's a chunk of lots in the middle that I think they're saving for when further on, uh, further on in the journey of the modern billboard collective. But it was interesting to kind of click through um, this little mapping and say, oh, who is this and who is this? So they're in perhaps the most desirable lot. Alex, this is the top left-hand corner lot is Fuzzco. And this is a creative agency that builds and extends brand systems and experience. And then there's another lot um, that links to a website called Crowded Table Workshop. And this is, I clicked on this. It led me to a lovely little website uh, offering handcrafted designs from a woodworking workshop in Dripping Springs, Texas. And then there was another lot on the Startup E website uh, that had been purchased by Wall Street Bulls, an NFT collection by the Wall Street Bets community. So it's a wide range of, of folks um, that are that are buying up these lots. And I think it is interesting. You know, that was one of the, the theses of the experiment was that it would become this sort of like uh, almost artistic cultural experiment of landing on a website and then go, hmm, I wonder who's here. I wonder who supports um, this, this project. I wonder who supports the team. And just having mm-hmm. a very surprising sort of map, uh, a sort of social graph, um, uh, Web three enabled social graph. So that was kind of cool to see as well. And it's it's so funny when you look at the inspiration for this, the million dollar homepage, yeah, because it is the most quintessential old school Web two website yeah. where it's just <laughs> total sensory overload. Like if you yes. think of the very early <laughs> newspapers online, it was like, let's see how much information we can cram on a single yes. page. And it's just yes. overwhelming. And if yes. you if you look at the actual like modern billboard, it's a lot cleaner. It's a grid. Um, and I, I'm interested to see how people get creative with this. So I'm seeing some examples, even in this this one picture that they posted on in this mirror post here, uh, where people are buying up um, adjacent squares and then putting a series of images that all align with each other. That's a yes. way to say, yeah, you have to buy up more plots, but you actually draw your attention more to that because it's taking up more surface area. The other yes. thing here is just like a billboard, it's how are you going to entice people to click on that exactly. ad? Because it's totally exactly. different from normal banner ads where you you have kind of more physical real estate on the web page where you can put some writing, um, you can kind of make a case. It's, it's kind of like a physical billboard where at least in this initial version, it's more of like an image. And this is a concept I've been thinking about. I might write a little bit on this, but it's almost like thinking of these plots here or just NFTs in general as kind of like logos on craft beer cans. If I'm looking at a store and I'm going across the shelf, Mm -hmm. I don't know Mm -hmm. much at all about all that beer. I might say, okay, that's an IPA. Generally speaking, I like those or that's a blonde, that's an amber, whatever. But after that, it's just like, oh, this artwork's cool. I guess I'll get this. (laughs) <laughs> and then you end up saying, that's kind of, it's kind of yeah, what this essentially, is. Yes. The initial yes. buy-in is, oh, this looks cool. And then you end up staying if, in the case of the beer, it tastes good. Or in the, these cases, it's like, <laughs> okay, this is actually what I was looking for. This, is, this provides utility I was looking for. 
So uh, it will so be right. really interesting to see how people get creative with this and entice people to click and then yes. make them stay based on the utility they're offering. Yeah, I love it. You're so right about the craft beer thing. But I was when I was uh, <laughs> prepping for the pod, Alex, I was like, I, I was keen to see who who's among the first wave of a, a adopters that are buying up these lots. So I was clicking through it. But I thought to myself, just like you, we need to somehow incentivize. First of all, the awareness needs to be raised that there are websites that are now having these billboards. But then what is the incentive? Can we can we otherwise make it more than just like serendipitous, like, ooh, what's this? And someone clicks on it and figures out that this is the Web3 version of of the million dollar website, can we actually create uh, a special experience and incentive for people that are surfing the web to actually look for these modern billboards? And I thought to myself, it would be really cool if you had uh, people that were buying up these lots and then pointing them to uh, places on their website, for instance, if they're a consumer brand where they're giving like really insane good deals, you know, or like completely exclusive products, like hidden products the way you go to like in and out and there's like a hidden menu. If you know, like the, um, um, the secret phrase, it was just, it, it would be, it turned out to be, I think a very culturally apt sort of situation. If you had these companies that were buying up these lots and hiding little Easter eggs in them so that you could build up this culture of people actually seeking mm-hmm. out these modern billboards. I like that. I like that. Yes. Yes. Very, very cool. Um, so why don't we head right now into DAOs? I'm gonna quite I'm gonna try to go pretty short on this. Um, this is usually the segment where we talk about new tooling and product. And so actually a very funny story of how we came upon uh, this uh, product. It's called Butter. But the inspiration here, I just want to touch on this very quickly. So I was uh, surfing the Twitterverse, came across this really cool tweet um, by a teacher who basically tweeted, um, God bless the the one student in the classroom that is uh, that is always nodding along with you while you're lecturing, <laughs> while the rest of the students are looking at you like you're a dead fish. There's always one, she said, there's always one nodding along with you, a hero. And it just like, it just touched my heart because I was like, yes, you know, this is, there's nothing more. I mean, putting aside the possibility that the teacher is full of hot air, which could completely be the case. But if we just give this teacher like the benefit of the doubt and, and think that this is a human being who is doing hard work, you know, work that is not paid very well and that is in this profession precisely for this moment of reaching a younger human being, of being able to reach them, of being able to say something that they, they can like connect on and understand and that is somehow empowering and enriching this young person's life for even just a moment, then you can understand why this simple gesture of the head nod from this one student in the class could mean the world for this teacher. So I tweeted it and I said, oh my God, I'm so in love with this tweet. And then Alex saw it and Alex, his reply was like, I think you have just happened upon the fatal shortcoming of, of DAOs, <laughs> of Web3, is that it, we're, we're um, deprived of that body language. We, we can't see the head nodding. And so then this kind of uh, triggered another response from someone else on this thread saying, yes, absolutely, uh, DAOs need to get away from Discord uh, voice being the, uh, the default for, for DAO meetings. And out of this came a sort of conclusory tweet where someone said, you've got to check out Butter for DAOs. You've got to use Butter for DAOs. So I actually checked it out a couple of nights ago. And I do recommend that everyone here that is working uh, in a DAO, check out this tool. Because yes, it looks a lot like Zoom on first glance, but there are some key differences. So let's go over what those are. So 
Butter is a virtual collaboration tool. So it combines video conferencing, of course, but then it has this really cool suite of collaborative tools. And the way that they integrate those collaborative tools is is really, really cool. I mean, it's not like earth-shaking revolution, but there are some step function improvements that I think really do help this um, pain point that Alex and I pointed out about the lack of body language, the lack of sort of that visceral immediacy of seeing someone's reaction to what you're saying. So again, it does integrate those collaborative tools, including the whole G Suite, Miro, Mural, and the like. They have a really cool, Alex, agenda creation feature. So you can plan out an entire agenda within the Butter platform. You can create agenda blocks. You can have facilitator notes. You can actually have a timing feature so that while you're speaking, it's very clear, like, oh my goodness, I'm coming up against 15 minutes for this intro. I better hurry it up. But the really cool thing that I like, and then I'll touch on the, the more interactive aspect, is that when you pull up these collaborative tools, like a Miro board or a Google Doc, you can actually work on them from within the application itself. This, this to me was like my, my moment of delight when I was trying it out. Um, so for instance, if you're on a Google Meets, if I'm on a Google Meets with Alex and I want to screen share my Google Doc that I'm working on, I have to go outside the Google Meets tab. I have to look away from it and then I have to work in the specific tab where I have the Google Doc open. And with Butter, it gets rid of this. You can actually stay within the Butter app. So the screen sharing window is the same place where you're actually doing the work. So this allows you to seamlessly view and edit the document while keeping your eyes, so to speak, on everything that's happening. You can still see Alex, you can still see the room. And most importantly, you can see these um, these emoji reactions. So it's not just an emoji, they actually have like sound reactions. So they have like clapping, they have whistling. And it, the <laughs> when you actually press on them, it actually makes an immediate noise. So it, you do get that you do get that visceral reaction. It's not the same as seeing like a human face that's nodding and having that moment of connection, but you do immediately get that noise. And of course they do have the emoji feature. If someone does a thumbs up, the thumbs up icon floats up on your screen in a very obvious way. You can't miss it. So while you're speaking, while you're facilitating this workshop or what have you, you're able to get that immediate visceral reaction uh, from your workshop participants. So that is butter. And I do recommend that folks that are in Dallas, check it out. Yeah, it's. we were actually talking about this, that I know a lot of people feel like the DAO tooling space is so overcooked right now. And there's definitely yeah. a, uh, there's merits to that, right? And I think that goes for both tools that are made for DAOs and then maybe tools that are getting repurposed and work really well for DAOs. I think mm-hmm. there are bad examples like Discord that just we're not at all in alignment mm-hmm. with what DAOs needed to be. And we've kind of adopted it and are looking for something else. But then you have these tools that can work for Web2 traditional companies like Butter and, and it has an integration with Miro. And um, kudos to you, Caroline, for putting this together because during our off season, Caroline put together this whole Miro board to help us basically structure the future of what Forefront was going to be. And it made it was such a good collaborative tool. And even though Miro wasn't designed for DAOs, it aligned with what DAOs needed. So I would invite people to look at tools in that way and not necessarily say you have to have a tool that's purpose-built for DAOs, but rather maybe what already exists out there and then what still needs to get built that can align with the way DAOs need to operate. So I would invite people not to to be too closed off because Butter is not necessarily a DAO tool, but this could work Mm -mm. very, very well for DAOs 
especially Definitely. in the off seasons or for core team meetings where you're doing a lot of visualization. You're like trying to get a lot of people together and go in the right direction. And this offers a lot of that visualization. And then the human connection. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but we keep talking about how in-person events, critical infrastructure. This is the remote person, uh, the remote version of in-person. And yes. it, there, there's something like over 55% of human beings' ability to communicate is body language. Mm. And the next after that is the tone of our voice. So that's why video, or that's why um, you know, audio is super, super important, having voice meetings. Only 7% of human beings' ability to communicate is words. So when you think of things mm -hmm. like Twitter, like Mirror, they, yeah, they're shocking. awesome tools, but it, <laughs> less than 90% of our ability to communicate. So I, I, I want people to think through that when they're thinking like, how are we able to structure this DAO and not hamstring our ability to communicate? And it makes total sense when you peel back the layers on, on and you think like 7% is only the words we say. Like if I'm just sp like spouting out gibberish here and I'm using my hands, my voice is really great. People are still going to be like, what the, what the hell is this person saying? But it's the way our, <laughs> our brains developed over time. The very first thing in our brains to develop was body language. Is this other entity aggressive towards me? Is this thing going to kill me? That's the first thing in our mm -hmm. brain that developed. The next was tone. Is this an angry grunt or is this a very soft, soft <laughs> grunt? Like, is this a friendly person? The last thing in our brains to develop was words. So it's the newest thing and it's our, our, the, the least tool that we have to communicate. So I, I mm -hmm. want people to say, it is super important to have video here. There's problems, obviously, with people who want to remain anonymous, right? There, there's yes. going to be solutions for that long term. And I imagine there's yes. going to be something like AR or like an ethical use of deep fakes where you can repurpose your mm. face live on screen, still talk, still use your voice, still have the kind of facial recognition and nods and everything like that, and yet remain anonymous. There's mm. probably going to be... Um, efforts towards that. And at least in the interim, when you don't have that, there is a risk of being exclusionary to say, let's all get on video. And the people who don't want, who want to be anonymous aren't on video and they miss out in their ability to communicate. So there's all these implications to be thinking about. But I, th I think at the core here, that while Web3 is very natively digital and anonymous and all of that, we are still human beings at the end of the day. And we, we don't yes. want to shortchange that. We want to take that into account. Yes. 100% Alex, 100%. And it's uh, actually, and it brings me to the thought that, uh, as I mentioned at the early part of the show, we are, uh, our season two contributor applications are open. And the, the working groups, the community working groups that I'm uh, helping to steward, uh, one of the uh, application questions was that, you know, can you create a Loom video uh, walking us through a, a project of yours that you've been most proud of, or perhaps walking us through a um, contribution that you would propose bringing to the working group? But one aspect of this question was that uh, we would love to see your face because, you know, I, I, I had this little description underneath this uh, type form application that said that the foundational members of the community working groups, I wanted to be people that were comfortable uh, showing their faces. And I remember mm -hmm. feeling a little bit torn about this, Alex, for the exact reason that you just said, is that I didn't want to be exclusionary. But at the end of the day, and I, I've never yet been able to experience the power of these conferences that you've been to. Uh, Alex, first MCON and now ETH Denver, um, where you come back with these stories of how transformative it is to see these people finally in 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 uh, in person and to have face to face uh, 
physical interactions. And so this is what is on my mind. It's like, yes, I am going to be excluding people that do are more comfortable being anonymous and, and staying off. Uh, camera, but at the on the other hand, what we gain from people that are comfortable doing that and uh, being comfortable, uh, being more vulnerable and showing their faces, so to speak, in, in many senses to the community is, I think, outweighs those disadvantages. Yeah, totally agree. So we'll pivot to something else here in the the risk of beating a dead horse on this. We're going to talk about Ukraine Dow, which has been probably the top thing that I've seen on my Twitter. <laughs> thread over the past few weeks for good reason. Um, but I, I wanted to cover a few highlights on what's been happening in this space, uh, the progress that they've been making, and then I think the implications here. So similar to something like Constitution Dow, there's what are they trying to accomplish? How are they doing? But then also, what are the learning lessons for other DAOs? What, what, is, what is the implication for all of Web3? How can this advance Web3? So to, to give an overview for people who might not be intimately aware of Ukraine Dow. This was something that was created uh, jointly by people from Pussy Riot, Trippy Labs, Pleaser Dow, CXIP, and then uh, many other Ukrainian humanitarian activists who are actually based out of Ukraine. Uh, and the idea was to basically use blockchain technology to coordinate around something that's very real world. And this, this is kind of the main takeaway, I think, here is blockchain is a tool to make meaningful improvements offline it's easy to get siloed and just just think of the metaverse and everything like that. But blockchain has a very meaningful impact on the real world. And something like Ukraine DAO could be an advertisement for that to the rest of the world. And for people who might just think that crypto is a total scam and it's magic internet money, here's a real world implication value add to something like in a war, right? So just to, to, to give you a little bit more about what's going on here, the, what they're trying to do here is have direct relationships with people in Ukraine, collect donations in many different forms through the DAO, and then donate those, um, those proceeds to these different foundations and people in Ukraine who are boots on the ground and actually positively impacting and fighting against uh, Putin's regime. So one of the main ones that they're donating to here, and this was donated from the one of one NFT that, they, that, that I'll get to here in a second, is the Return Alive Foundation or the Come Back Alive Foundation. It's translation, so it can be either. And I'll, I'll just read a little excerpt on their site here about what they do. And it's translation from, uh, from Russian, so bear with me here. Return Alive Foundation next to the Ukrainian military, the forefront of the Russian-Ukrainian war is not just the front. It is where the war for Ukraine is going on. In hospitals, warehouses, landfills, in the media, and offices, we supply and repair equipment, train the military and officers, help change the armed forces, talk about the war firsthand, and curb the flow of propaganda and disinformation. And this has been going on for seven years. The fund provides the Ukrainian mm. army with the most important thing, a tactical advantage. So they've been around for a while. They have a history, um, a good history of um, making a big change here. And these are one of the organizations that Ukraine Dow is actually partnering with to put the proceeds towards. So a few ways that they're doing this. Um, they're taking direct donations to something like uh, their, their uh, ENS domain here is ukrainedow.eth. And a little caveat here, you have to be careful that that is the exact ENS that you end up donating to, because believe it or not, there have been scams popping up um, as a front for Ukraine Dow and basically stealing donations. Mm -hmm. 
opportunists with zero morals taking advantage of any opportunity they can see, right? So just be aware of that. Um, anyone donating over 0.05 ETH is eligible for a POAP. So you can actually get something back and prove that I donated to this particular cause. Um, the other piece, the major way that they raise money here was releasing a one-of-one one Ukrainian flag NFT. And there was, a, there was a bid going on. There was an auction for this. And it got drove up all the way to around uh, 2,070 ETH, which is over $6 million. Mm. So that was the winning bid. And what's different about this is that this was kind of like a crowd pool that could win this one-of-one one NFT. So I'll read a little excerpt that they, that they mentioned about this. We did not want the focus to be on an individual artist or influencer or establish that one NFT was more valuable over another. All donations matter. The sale is hosted as a party bid auction a platform that allows people to pool resources and bid collectively for group ownership of the NFT. Anyone who donates to the party bid will receive a POAP digital souvenir of commemorating their donation. So that one big NFT auction raise the majority of their money. They've, they've raised about like $6.3 million so far nice. uh, and increasing. So th there's a few implications here, right? Obviously, there's a direct positive impact in supporting the organizations that are boots on the ground and helping Ukraine fight against this, this war of conquest. The, mm. I think the other kind of meta thing about this is this is getting press and mainstream news. So you're seeing now the power of Web3 that it's having a direct impact on the world. And what I'm hoping mm -hmm. this can be is people seeing this and having their own aha moment. We're very mm -hmm. passionate about supporting Ukraine in this and seeing a DAO come together and they're like, what the hell is a DAO? Oh, it's crypto? I thought crypto was just a scam. Well, now there's a way here where people are organizing in this space and donating meaningful amount of money and making a meaningful difference. So what I'm hoping it is is not only having that direct impact, but can be an aha moment for other people. Mm -hmm. Everyone's coming from different perspectives and this is an opportunity and they're doing it really, really well. The reputation's really good so far. Um, so that's, that's what I'm hoping the two good things come out of this, but a lot going on there still definitely keep an eye on that. The war's hopefully not just getting started, but it could be very early on. So this, this is an example of how blockchain and crypto and DAOs can make a meaningful impact in the real world here. I actually am looking at your notes here for the Ukraine DAO. I'm, I'm quite interested in uh, how the funds are being used. So this, the DAO has several members with direct connections on the ground to the organization distributing resources. Is this taken, where is this uh, content taken from, Alex? Where did so you this find was, this this was a, um, an article, uh, an interview done by some of the people running the DAO. So mm -hmm. some of it was they're like, we're, we're trying not to give away specific names, boots on the ground, but one specific organization that they did note and was all the proceeds from that NFT raise, which was the vast majority of the money there, was mm -hmm. donating to the Return Alive Foundation, where they're very much boots on the ground, supplying the Ukrainian army, who's doing a lot of the uh, protecting and then cleaning up and you know protecting people. So it, it. the vast majority is going to that foundation, but they're, they're partnering with other established um, nonprofits over there versus mm -hmm. having a direct impact themselves, like not necessarily sending people over there and, 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 and giving them money. But the question I did have that I didn't necessarily get an answer to was, are they sending over like mm -hmm. crypto 
right away or are they converting it to fiat and sending it over? Because here's another mm-hmm. use case, right? Where especially when Ukraine, uh, electricity is getting shut down, even potentially mm-hmm. internet, but Starlink is coming through, Elon Musk coming through and hopefully beaming down internet to keep them operational and not be reliant on um, you know Russian energy. But what could be done here is if they actually have a way to send that crypto directly. I mean, it's the same reason why people here in the US come from overseas and then send crypto back to their family because the wire transfer is takes forever and can be expensive where you have an instantaneous transaction through crypto. So that's another use case where they mentioned over and over, like, why are you doing this? Why aren't you using more traditional vehicles? Well, one of it is speed, um, mm-hmm. being able to send that very, very quickly. So I imagine that's the way that they're going. The, the other main reason why they're not going more traditional means and not just being like, a, oh, because we can, like there's actual utility to doing this through a DAO. A great example here is Patreon has suspended pages seeking donations for Ukrainian NGO um, Come Back Alive, which is the foundation I just mentioned, due to its policy against fundraising mm-hmm. for weapons or military activities. So you have a perfect example of a single point of failure, a middleman yes. saying, actually, you know what? I don't want people to do that for whatever reason, legal, legal reasons, for business reasons, whatever. But now yes. you have this, you can have people organize and use technology that's peer-to-peer and permissionless and make this happen. So there's a very real use case here, especially for things like war and maybe potentially controversial things. Yes. And and so interesting too, I kind of called out the question of how funds are being used because I think that there's increasing awareness, Alex, on the part of uh, folks of uh, how the quote unquote, the charity complex works, where you have the vast majority of funds that you give or you donate being spent on overhead, right? I think there's much more awareness mm-hmm, of that now. Mm-hmm. And I fact, I think some of the most successful, quote unquote, old world charities that have come up, like for instance, Charity Water in recent years, have basically built their reputation and brand on the fact that, oh, so much of $1 is actually going to the people who need it the most, yep. right? So I, I find it quite interesting that this, this uh, quote that you pulled from this interview saying like, you know, we can't give away the system we're using, we can't identify the people on the ground. Yeah. Um, because it's, if, if, if you think about it, we're always saying, oh, blockchain, uh, trustless, trustless, trustless. But in fact, you know, we've, we've already seen with the way that uh, trends have been going that we actually do want to trust the charity that we're giving yeah. to. We don't want our money <laughs> yeah. to be going to support bureaucratic um, overhead when it should be going to the people. But I think it makes a huge difference, Alex, that the people behind this DAO, Pleaser DAO, Trippy Labs, Pussy Riot, these, these are quote unquote brands, if you will, that have earned trust. And there's goodwill there. Um, so I think in, in an emergency, in a, in a war situation, and especially because uh, DAOs such as Pleaser DAO, they've shown uh, over, over and, uh, time and time again uh, the goodwill that they have, um, that this is something that you can actually say, no, I, I trust this brand, I trust this DAO, and I'm, I'm willing to give in the situation knowing nothing about um, what percentage of mm-hmm. my dollars is actually going to the people. So I find that to be quite interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree on that point. Um, we can transition into buzzworthy news here. And yes, <laughs> it just, it seemed like the theme when, when we were looking at different topics, it, it, one, it didn't seem like a whole lot of stuff was coming out. I, I love the stuff that we came together. I think they're amazing. But in terms of volume, we're usually overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. We're here was like grasping at mm-hmm. straws for things. And <laughs> I think part of it is right now, it, there's, there's a lot of doom and gloom on CT for, for good or for bad. I mean, you obviously have the war there, which is very warranted. You have uh, the bear market going on. People are depressed or 
looking for ways mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to turn that around. And then just a series of different like rough news for, for Web3. So we wanted to cover a few of these. The, the big one here that, that came up uh, over the last few weeks was just general tough times at consensus. So there was a lawsuit going on. There was Infura blocking access to certain jurisdictions in Ukraine. Also, Infura accidentally going down in Venezuela. There were just a few things going on that's um, <laughs> just not a good time to, not a good time for consensus, hard time right now. So going to the lawsuit here, I'll, I'll give the, the, the headline here. So on Tuesday, 1st of March, uh, 2022, a group of 35 former employees representing more than 50% of all known consensus AG shareholders filed a request for a special audit. Uh, the special audit is to investigate serious irregularities. So the main irregularity here that they mentioned that they identified was in August of 2020, fundamental intellectual property and subsidiaries were illegally transferred from CAG into a new entity, Consensus Software Incorporated, CSI, in exchange for 10% ownership of CSI and an offset of $39 million loan by founder Joseph Lubin. uh, Internally coded Project Northstar, the transaction resulted in legacy financial institutions such as J.P. Morgan Chase acquiring an influential stake in MetaMask and Infura, two of the Mm. most widely used infrastructure tools on Ethereum. One year later, this intellectual property was used to raise funding for CSI at a valuation of $3 billion with rumors of a $7 billion valuation for the current round. And... (laughs) The big piece here is Joseph Lubin is the majority shareholder of both companies, and the transaction was to the detriment of the minority shareholders of CAG and to the benefit of Joseph Lubin personally. Yeah, yikes. Yikes. (laughs) Not good press, I would say. Um, So there's a lot going on here. I think um, piggybacking on that was all this drama going on with Infura. And there were two main pieces here, which is Infura being blocked in certain jurisdictions based on sanctions, U.S. sanctions, and then it accidentally going down and quote unquote going down, there's few definitions of that, right? In Venezuela. So uh, a country that could very much use all of blockchain of crypto and DeFi and things like that because of the hyperinflation and, and government turmoil that's going on in that country, mm-hmm. right? So I think mm-hmm. aside from the details here of it going down and jurisdictional things and everything like that. I think it brings up the question or the criticism that Moxie really brought up. We covered a few weeks ago uh, about ironically web three being fairly centralized, at least right Mm -hmm. now. So Infura is a major, major um, infrastructure provider for different dApps. Uh, I'd say infrastructure uh, Infura and Alchemy are the two big ones right now. And Brian Armstrong at uh, Coinbase actually echoed this sentiment, saying that there are more options than just Infura mm-hmm. and Alchemy. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of up to us to say, let's let's decentralize this a little bit. So even mm-hmm. though Infura and Alchemy are, are inherently centralized themselves, a version of decentralization is using a plethora of different centralized infrastructure companies. That's one way to decentralize. The other, the other point he brought up that it's, that's such a good point right now is because we're so early, there are a lot of hybrid Web 2, Web 3 apps right now in this phase of Web 3 development. And that doesn't mean the overall trend is bad. Um, it's 
it's really inherently difficult to build things in a decentralized way. Uh, I think the graph is a great example of this. Ethereum is another great example of this, where they started very centralized in order to get development up and running, and then they're gradually over time decentralizing. And the ethos is there. I think that's what the most important thing is. What is the trajectory, not what is the snapshot in time? Because it's very easy to sit here and say, snapshot in time, this sucks, therefore, this will always suck. And that's not the right attitude, in my opinion. It's the trajectory in, in many things, the trajectory matters um, mm-hmm. rather than your single point in time. I mean, a, a, a perfect parallel, in my opinion, is working out in fitness. In my opinion, it does not matter where you are starting. What matters to me is the trajectory. It doesn't matter if you're 300 pounds overweight. If your trajectory is you're going to the gym every day and you're making progress, that's what matters. That's what I make a bet on. And I think people should be thinking about crypto in the same way as if they're coming in and saying, the way it is right now, it sucks. Therefore, it's always going to suck. You have to be looking at the trajectory. And it's up to people who are building in the space to say, decentralization matters. And rather than us reverting to the mean and just saying, I'm going to go back to what's easiest, which is centralization. It's, it's right. up to us to say, let's hold ourselves to a better standard. It is way more difficult to decentralize and build that way. And even though we're fairly centralized right now, we have to be constantly working towards that ideal decentralized future. So it's super, super important to keep that ethos alive, which seems like it's a no-brainer right now with the people who are in the space. But I guarantee this is the same thing that companies run into when they're running into rapid growth is the culture is very difficult to maintain the larger the Mm -hmm. company is. The same thing will happen in Web3 is we're going to get this exponential growth of people coming into Web3 and that ethos of decentralization can get diluted if we're not careful. So it's super, super important to be educating people about the the value of decentralization, not just like we're going to decentralize. Why? Why should we decentralize? Constantly be talking about this, even though it feels like we're beating a dead horse, even though it feels like we're preaching to the choir, because the choir is getting bigger. And there's new people who need to be preached to and say, this is why this is super important. And here are the pitfalls. Because if you hadn't gone through personally the the web one to web two phase, I mean, there were a lot of people apparently back then saying like the internet is going to be this, this super sovereign thing, this decentralizing, this equalizer, and it ended up reverting back to centralized mm-hmm. means because that ethos was lost because more people got into the internet who didn't fully believe in that ethos or weren't taught that ethos, and it, get di- it got diluted. So it would be stupid of us to think that, oh, that won't happen this time, because it's a very, very real risk, and we have to be on top of that. And even though right now, when you see these examples like Infura being very uh, centralized and running a lot of the infrastructure that, that dApps are run on, that's something that we have to account for and not just brush under, just like throw under the rug. It can be very easy to do that and say, what are we going to be doing long-term in order to constantly decentralize this and, and maintain that ethos? Thank you, Alex, for, for taking us through these tough times at Consensus. This leads into the next uh, little bit of rough news that we want to jam on briefly. There's been a lot of this on crypto Twitter as well, but I think we, we wanted to touch on it. It has everything to do with governance. It has everything to do with this ethos of decentralization. And it does, it does present some very um, interesting, problematic questions. So we wanted to uh, dive into it for a little bit and highlight some things that I thought were interesting in uh, two related articles that I found. So we are talking about the Brantley, Milligan, and ENS controversies. So as many of you probably know, Brantley Milligan uh, is the director of the ENS Foundation. Last month, February, there were old tweets of Milligan's that were resurfaced 
shocking, very homophobic, very transphobic. This was enough to cause a huge controversy. As you can imagine, uh, Alex has just been jamming about this heartfelt ethos of decentralization, how we have to be quite careful about this being diluted. And it's not just the ethos of decentralization in terms of like trustlessness and blockchain architecture, but it really is about uh, a very deep, heartfelt values of being as inclusive as possible. I mean, I'm not saying that this is, and of course, the, the Milligan controversy will show this point up. I'm not saying that this is by far everyone in Web3 thinks like this, thinks like X, but it is, I would say, a quite... Um, a quite palpable, tangibly felt strain of a culture that is trying to make its way more and more to the surface in Web3, which is this sort of uh, reaction to what happened in Web2, a reaction to the sort of illegitimate consolidation of power. But moreover, Web3, I think, is, is being seen as a frame or a lens through which you can look at the entire world. And so it's not just about the Web2 companies uh, having done wrong with the utopian optimistic vision of what the internet could be, um, but it's also people that are flowing into the Web3 space now who are filled with creativity and, and ambition and compassion. Um, there are very many, many people, many of my peers are very, very concerned about social justice, very much concerned about, about equity. So the fact that Milligan, who is a very prominent a leader in the ENS community that these this these past tweets of his resurfaced and in reaction he he didn't apologize he he said that you know he would double down that there was nothing that he should apologize for it created a lot of a lot of deep hurt and this was enough to get him fired from his position uh, as director of operations of ENS uh, with True Names Limited. Uh, True Names Limited is the Singapore-based nonprofit that organizes and funds the Ethereum name service. Uh, the interesting part about this, and this will, this will touch on these questions, these thorny questions about governance and the, this thorny question of where exactly are we placing our faith when we're saying that the heart of Web3 is this ethos of decentralization are we barking up the right tree? Are, do we have the do we have the nuance here? Um, but anyway, this was this controversy was enough to get Milligan fired. Uh, Nick Johnson was Milligan's uh, supervisor at True Names and the founder of ENS. And True Names Limited was a, therefore a centralized aspect of this entire ENS entity. Thus, so that Nick Johnson could actually make this unilateral decision and say this Milligan's position with us no longer tenable and terminate him. So, so far that, that, that sort of, uh, decision on Nick Johnson's, um, part would definitely be seen by the community that was hurt by Milligan's uh, comments to be seen as justified and appropriate. The problem, Alex, is that the ENS entity is a multifaceted org structure. So even though Milligan had been terminated uh, at True Names Limited, he was still the director of the ENS Foundation. And the ENS Foundation is the legal entity behind ENS that is actually governed by the ENS DAO. And so that's the important point that I want y'all to remember is that the centralized aspect of the ENS business entity immediately terminated, basically very, very in, in short order, uh, terminated Milligan and was able to do so because Nick Johnson, the quote unquote centralized point of failure, was able to issue a decision and have it, he didn't have to reach consensus with anyone. And so he was able to terminate Milligan, but now Milligan remains as director of ENS and this is the legal entity that is governed by the ENS DAO. So the DAO put up a vote to remove Milligan 
from that position. And in the vote that ended last week, the decision that was collectively come to is that Brantley would actually remain. So there is a firestorm of controversy surrounding this, but I just want to pull out a few things for observation that have to do with, with governance specifically. There was a Coindesk article that appeared on this topic, and I want to quote from it briefly, Alex. It says, while the decision not to remove Milligan from the ENS Foundation seems democratic, it's important to remember how exactly voting power was initially distributed this past fall. Thanks to the lopsided distribution and delegation of tokens, Milligan always had outsized power over this ecosystem. This is what distinguishes the DAO governance model from, say, the co-op model, where in each community member gets one vote no matter their position in the hierarchy. Not coincidentally, Milligan himself holds a massive amount of ENS tokens and used them to vote against the proposal to have him removed. He's also been delegated votes by other ENS holders. So he holds around 1,600 tokens in his public wallet, but he's also controlling the combined voting power of everyone who delegated their votes, their votes to him. So he had something like 360K votes in his charge, and therefore he was, about to, he was able to sway the results in his favor, end quote. Uh, but, you know... The important thing about this is that if you look at another uh, op-ed, I pulled this from the uh, Wired piece, I believe, the Wired piece actually praised the rapid and decentralized manner in which the undelegating of votes to Brantley occurred. And so we hear another angle on the story here, Alex, and I'll quote from it, quote, after his views became clear, ENS holders quickly organized to start undelegating their votes from Milligan. By the end of the night, Milligan went from carrying a majority vote to having less than 1% of voting power. And this is a tweet from Dystopia Breaker, one of the main organizers of this undelegation on Twitter. Um, this person tweeted, we are on a few hours notice and without centralized permission, without board meetings, globally, without censorship, on a neutral computational substrate, autonomously undelegating our governance votes to this guy. Remind me again how you could ever do that at your C-Corp. So interesting angles coming at it from, from different sides. And I think what's so interesting and painful about the situation to, the, to those who were very impacted and very hurt is this telling quote, which I am again going to pull from the Wired piece. It says, in the case of ENS, the system worked as it was meant to, the system being the DAO, Alex. The DAO worked exactly as it was meant to. No one is alleging voter fraud or foul play. And yet the result of the DAO vote has enshrined a kind of exclusivity on chain. The ENS Foundation will continue to be led by a self-professed bigot according to a simple majority of votes. And then this is the question that really gets to the heart of the matter. What does it mean that one of the most quote-unquote decentralized organizations out there a community with a real system in place for determining its collective future has chosen this outcome, end quote. So in other words, I think for those members of the community, again, who were impacted and hurt by Milligan's views, the vehicle of governance here that served justice for them, that acted appropriately for them, was the centralized aspect of the org. It was that part of the org that could issue from the decision of a small group of people or even the founder, really, who could quickly assess the situation and act decisively without needing consensus of the whole community, whereas, ironically, the vehicle of governance that produced the unjust result in the eyes of those who were impacted and hurt was precisely the decentralized aspect, the DAO community. So I think 
so much to say on this, but we, we, uh, we, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a firestorm of controversy. And I think perhaps one lesson here, Alex, a painfully obvious one is that the technology is ultimately neutral. There's nothing inherent yeah. in built about blockchain, smart contracts, DAOs that in itself ensures equity or just results. And in fact, here you see a flipping of the script where the, the DAOs that are so intentionally uh, designed so as to be decentralized, so as to guard against unjust results, unjust consolidations of illegitimate power ends up producing the result um, that the community, a very large portion of the community saw as completely unacceptable. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Like I said, it's it's a firestorm of controversy. I, I think that's a good takeaway here is that the technology we're using is neutral. The people behind it are not necessarily neutral. We're all human mm-hmm. beings. And you have to think through that when you're designing the system that is the system going to have unintended consequences. This is a this is a core thing about AI. Like AI will do exactly <laughs> what you say, not necessarily what you mean. And if you design a system without thinking about all of the unintended consequences, you might have some unintended consequences. Now, I don't know if a true majority of people genuinely wanted Brantley to be removed. It could be the fact that the majority either mm-hmm. didn't want him to be removed or didn't care. And I'd be curious to see what amount of people didn't care. Coming back to our point about there's a good chunk of people who just don't care about governance, don't participate. They're in it for the speculation. So another reason why it's super important, because a lot of those people, especially from the ENS airdrop, uh, you had the option during that airdrop to delegate your tokens to a certain entity for Mm -hmm. voting power. Mm -hmm. And I bet you a lot of people made that decision once and then just haven't looked back and don't even care to change mm-hmm. that. Might even might not even know how to change that. Uh, and they might not even been aware that this vote was going on. So there's all of these gray areas where you, you, you have to design a system and, and educate people on why it's important to have a, a voting right. Because I wonder how much of the people who voted towards letting Brantley stay whether it was him voting or whether it was people delegating votes to someone who voted for him to stay, I wonder how much of those people just didn't care either way. Mm-hmm. And then the people who felt very, very strongly about it now feel slighted because even if even if they're in the minority or maybe they're in the majority, they feel much more strongly about it. So that kind of um, that kind of weighted voting, I think, can have its merits, and it's a good use case for us to look back and say how can we design something where it's it's in between every individual person having a single vote and then not allowing any single one person to have way too much of the vote and overtake what the majority of people want i mean you even have problems here this is this is literally problems that were were happening in ancient greece you have mm. you you have two things right you had pure democracy and then that devolved into basically a dictatorship. The, it was the Republic and then the dictatorship. And it's kind of that they had problems in every single, uh, every single form of government. You saw dicta- or, um, democracy where everyone's voting on everything. Uh, we're going to get to this in a little bit here where you have problems with that. People either don't care or they're not informed and can't make a good vote, or some people care way more than other people. And just having one-to-one voting um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then the closer you get to an individual person making all the calls. Well, there are problems if you're not able to get out of that project. So there, there's, there's trying to find the happy medium here. And both the good and bad thing is 
These kind of governance structures, these are ideas that are literally over 2,000 years old. These are problems that humanity has been dealing with mm-hmm. for millennia. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the good thing is we now have a new technology that can help us coordinate in a different way. And it's just up to the builders to say, how can we think through all the unintended consequences? How can we take examples like this ENS vote? And if we really, if, if we all agree that the vote should have gone the other way, how can we design a system that uh, ensures that this doesn't happen again? That the actual vote goes the way that whether we say the majority of people or the people who feel the strong, strongest about this or however we determine whatever the right decision is, how can we actually design the system to reflect that? And it comes back to not even outside, not even the technology, but more of like, what do we determine is right? Is right that the majority wins? Majority mm-hmm. rule always? Well, then what happens to the minor- minority? That, that there's a problem there. Or mm-hmm. does a right vote mean that 10% who feel super, super strong about something and then they vote there and everyone else feels kind of, they don't really care? Is that right? That's just yes. something that we have to determine that each DAO is going to have to determine to say, this is what right means so that we can design the DAO to say, well, when votes come in this way, then that's the way the vote's going to go. Not an easy question to answer. Ooh, these are thorny, thorny questions. Yes, yes. Um, my goodness. I mean, let's let's go right into the philosophy bombshell. That's a, a good a good nut to crack to take us into bridge this discussion. So, for our philosophy bombshell this this week, we found a Forbes interview with a business strategy strategist, apparently well known. I, I was not familiar with him, but his name is Same. Roger <laughs> L. Martin. And so we've been talking about governance. We've been talking about the very thorny problems that, like Alex said, have been uh, have been uh, for years, thousands of years now. We've been racking our minds to rack to rack our head around this. So the title of this: How modern corporations are ungovernable. So this is a very, very juicy title. So again, we've been talking about governance, the ENS situation, the Wired and the Coindesk articles pointing out the limits of Web3 token-mediated governance. This too has been a topic of discussion between Alex and me several times on the podcast. So let's just jump right into it. So essentially, Alex, Martin's chief argument here is that the, the principal agent problem is an insurmountable one in the modern, widely held, publicly traded company. So what is the principal agent problem? I'm quoting directly from uh, Investopedia here. So the principal agent problem is a conflict in priorities between the owner of an asset and the person to whom control of the asset has been delegated. So this problem can arise in many situations from the relationship between a client and a lawyer to the relationship between stockholders and a CEO. And this is the situation that Martin is is talking about. He's essentially saying, I have my interests, you have your interests, and they're unaligned. And how are we actually going to solve this problem? So in DAOs, for instance, I think we take a lot of stock. Once again, there's, there's this huge strain of thought within the DAO space that the technology is necessary and sufficient. The token mechanism will somehow magically align all interests but apart from this sort of strain of techno-determinism, it, it's just the tech in itself is never sufficient. It, it's just a patently false um, sort of proposition. Again, we saw the situation with ENS. So Roger Martin making the point that this modern, widely held, publicly traded company is ungovernable. He actually makes the point too that the stock-based compensation mechanism, the stock-based compensation is supposed to align the interests of management and stockholders 
But he goes on to say that the stock price of the company is nothing real, Alex. He says it's completely ethereal. Mm -hmm. It's not what people think it is. It's not this sort of real uh, measuring stick that somehow reflects the reality of the company and its operations. Uh, in, in some, the task of the management, and Martin says this, it, it was kind of like a, a an eye-opening uh, an eye-opening quote, but he says, the task of the management in view of this illusory nature of the stock price is just to keep, quote, delivering positive surprises to capital markets. And it's often to a CEO's benefit, says Martin, to manipulate matters, to intentionally depress expectations, intentionally depress prices so as to enrich themselves on the bounce back up. So after making this point, after talking about the unreality of stock prices, Martin basically concludes in the interview that the governance problem is insoluble. And moreover, when he's asked by the interviewer, well, how are we going to solve this? He says, uh, essentially centralization, Alex. He says the improvement <laughs> is going to come from much more of a return to the corporate structure of the 1920s and the 1930s, where public shareholders were simply along for the ride. These were semi-public companies. There was somebody who owned the majority stake or at least a controlling stake and said, hey, if you want to come along, go ahead. But I'm managing this and I don't basically care what you think. And Martin points out that there is now a kind of resurgence, a sort of return to that mentality, at least in America, where you have Tesla, you have Google, you have these firms where they have very visionary, charismatic, um, dictatorial leaders, my way or the highway, Steve Jobs being the archetypal example. I don't care what you think. I'm uninterested. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is the solution because the widely held publicly traded company is, um, is, uh, is, is, is essentially ungovernable. And I, I find it interesting. He actually, I think it was maybe the interviewer that mentioned here, Brian Armstrong, where he was pointing out that there was actually some big firms in the crypto space that are actually uh, centralized in this way. Brian Armstrong owns the majority um, of Coinbase. Uh, and so that was pointed out. And the funny thing uh, about this article, Alex and I had a good chuckle about it when we were doing our prep, is when Martin was asked his opinion about DAOs. I, I just have to quote this. I love and this I know this so is going much. to piss this is going to piss people off. I know for sure it's going to piss people <laughs> off. But because Alex and I try to go around these issues, we, we like to tackle these thorny questions. We like to go around, we like to see it from different angles. Um, we're not going to focus. We're not going to focus on the part that is obviously incendiary to many believers of Web three. We're going to try to pick out the things where it's like, you know what? That's that could be valid. So, mm -hmm. but first, let's hear from Martin himself. That sounds like a phenomenally dumb idea to me. So he's he's being asked his opinion about DAOs. That sounds like a phenomenally dumb idea to me. I think it's mainly massive hype. So there's a tool that a bunch of very geeky people have come up with. They're totally in love with it. They're trying to find something useful to do with it. And they're trying to create an ideology about it. Oh, it's all about decentralization. And they'll find things to use the tool for. NFTs <laughs> is a good example. It created an industry because now you can prove ownership of something. I don't doubt that it'll have applications, but do I see it as a way of changing human nature? which is what this is saying, that people want a kind of completely decentralized everybody votes thing. If they <laughs> wanted that, Facebook and Google wouldn't control the internet. Remember, we had the hype back then. Oh, it's going to be the most democratizing force on the face of the planet. Everybody can contribute. Everybody can be on their own. Well, look what happened. Way, way more centralized nodes, centralized control of a sort that we've never seen in the history of the planet. So if people are lustful and longing for all sorts of 
decentralized systems where everybody participates in every decisions. Well, humans have never worked that way. And I don't think humans want to. And they are showing us that by having fealty to Facebook and Google, end quote. This <laughs> cannot help. I mean, it, this is the thread. It, it reminds me, Alex, of Moxie's impressions of Web3, where he kept yeah. saying again and yep. again and again, no one wants to run their own server. No one ever will. So after that mic drop from Martin, I pass it over to you, my friend. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? I respect the hell out of this opinion. I mean, I think there are uh, uh, generalizations that he's making naturally as someone who's not deeply involved in this space. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's it's honestly the realization that a lot of people have come to in the DAO space where it's they've been trying to be completely democratized, completely decentralized, and then only 10%, if you're lucky, end up voting on governance or people yeah. vote who really shouldn't be voting. And then people started to warm up to it. It's like, maybe this isn't the best way to organize this. Mm-hmm. And th- a lot of people came to the same realization here of like, there's this romanticiza- romanticization of complete decentralization when it comes yes. to running DAOs. And we're realizing that's not the way to do this. The other way that he's going is saying, let's have basically this visionary leader who it's my way, the highway, you can come along if you want. And I think that's very valid. I don't think it's the only way in my opinion, but I think it's a very valid way to run. Let's, mm-hmm. he, here's the beautiful thing about DAOs. And I love, I love everything in this article. I highly recommend people read it because there's <laughs> a ton of stuff that he's talking about. Even when he's talking about corporate structure and things like valuation of stocks, all Definitely. of that is relevant to Web3 and to tokens mm-hmm. and to crypto. And it's super important to understand those foundations. But he, he has this idea of this visionary leader uh, and that can work. And the beautiful thing about DAOs is we can try that in these little micro economies. I, uh, I love how much he talks about incentive structures here because I'm obsessed with those. That's the main reason why I love this space so much. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in history, we're able to create, the, create these enclosed environments that are DAOs and these micro economies where you control for all these different variables. You bring certain tokenomics in, you, these incentive structures. You bring people into the DAO and you basically let it go like a simulation and say, I wonder if people are actually going to do the behaviors that I was intending them to do. So again, the technology, the incentive structures, those are neutral. The people creating them have opinions, are, are biased. So mm-hmm. it's super important when you're going in and you're designing these things, you're thinking, how can this thing have in- unintended consequences? Mm-hmm. The composability about this is you can come in, you can try all these different microeconomies, all these different incentive structures, and then see, did this actually work? Did people actually behave the way I was trying to incentivize them to behave? And one of the ways that we could test this, maybe the opposite of a lot of the people who have the full decentralization ethos, is come in, run a DAO, have that visionary leader, and they're basically saying, I'm just going to do what I want. If you want to come along for the ride here, then by all means, come along. Mm-hmm. And the added benefit here is that it's more liquid than stock. Right. You could immediately pull out of that and say, you know what, this guy's crazy, or this guy just tweeted something weird. Uh, don't know who uh, I might be referring to there. Uh, <laughs> and then one day they're, they're beaming down internet to Ukraine in a war that most people are, are siding with Ukraine. And that kind of fickleness, people could ebb and flow and come in and out and saying like, yeah, I believe in this guy, or actually this guy's a little crazy. And mm-hmm. as long as you have that fluidity, you can test that out in a microeconomy and see if it works. And the beautiful thing is it's a composable environment. Everyone can see, is this working or not? And then 
remove the things that didn't work, build on the things that did work, and move on with it. So I, I, I do think he's a little short-sighted in, in DAOs, but you can tell there he's like, there's a ton of hype, which there is, but there's actually going to be applications here, which there are. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen right now is it's kind of clouded by all these different scams and all of the romanticization going on. And what's going to happen is the, the, with the composable nature, hopefully what's going to happen is the winners are going to be found much quicker. And then people are going to build on those wins and eliminate the losses more quickly. Um, so I love just reading through all of his different opinions. Like this guy is definitely like an OG corporate strategist. <laughs> and there are such good things in here that you yes, might think, oh, yes. it's corporate, whatever. Yes, but exactly. You, there, are such, there are things that are directly relevant stuff. to Web3. And there are things that are saying like, that's not what I want to replicate. And it's super important to understand where we've come and the pitfalls that other people have gone into and not think this is the first time we're approaching these problems. Because like I said before, some of these problems people have been working on for literally millennia, 2,000, 3,000 years. And we have new technology to actually bring out and and set up the incentive structures and bring out the behavior that we want. And it's super important to identify what were those pitfalls? What was the corporate structure like in the 1920s? What is it like now? What are the pitfalls there? How are stock options actually valued? How does that relevant to how tokens are valued? There's more utility Mm. to tokens. So how do I introduce that utility? So so much of that in this article, I highly, highly recommend people read this and read that section about DAOs with an open mind because he has a ton of great points. Yeah, I love it. You know, I just appreciate your take on that, Alex. Um, I had a feeling that you would like it because his thinking is, is so rigorous and you can tell that it's been won. You know, he's he's like struggled through these. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Apparently he has this reputation of being like a legendary strategist. I knew nothing about him, but just from listening to the way that he thinks, the quality of his thinking, um, the way that he's completely unromantic about everything. I mean, he's completely slaying the idea of, of the modern uh, corporation. He's slaying the idea of the stock market. He doesn't hold anything back. And that's why when he does say this, uh, describes DAOs as being phenomenally dumb, I keep my ears open, you know, because I think that we can learn. I think that that's something that I've always appreciated. You, you bring in this sort of historical aspect. And it's something that we've encouraged our audience to do from the very beginning, which is that if you are really keen on Web3, look outside Web3. And that's the best way, actually, that you can kind of enrich yourself going down the rabbit hole and prevent yourself from falling a victim to, I think, unnuanced dogma, which is certainly everywhere in every sort of sector that you turn to. And of course, it's also present um, in in the DAO space. But I, I think that this is something that's incredibly valuable. And if we're saying that one of our central ethos here in Web3 is inclusivity and diversity, this absolutely has to include, in my eye, uh, divergent thinking, diversity of opinion. Uh, And I I remember talking with um, a colleague in in Forefront, and she has some contacts with folks that work in the Web2 world. She has folks that work in academia. And she was asking, well, what do you think about this? Should Should we try to draw bridges? Should we try to reach out to these contacts in the old world, quote unquote, quote, and, and try to get them to come to the table and have conversations. I was like, absolutely, we can learn from them. You know, this mm-hmm. idea that we have to turn our back completely and just throw out the baby with the bathwater is just, it, like you said, we've been struggling with these same yes. questions. The context, the immediate context may be changing, but the essence of the question is still there. Um, so just want to circle back very quickly on this, Alex, because I'm, I'm curious. So besides 
the the sort of uh, I would say the very easy answer that there's just capital sloshing around like crazy in the DAO space. Besides the, the easy answer of that, then uh, Alex, you kind of you hypothesized a vision where you could have this very charismatic, visionary, dictatorial entrepreneur stand up a DAO. So in your eyes, why would someone like that go for the DAO vehicle versus the traditional? corporate vehicle besides the, besides the easy answer that there's a ton of capital sloshing around the DAO space right now. What do you think the DAO vehicle offers a visionary entrepreneur like that? Well, so, I mean, it would be the difference between creating a corporate structure and buying stocks in that and versus maybe not even a, a DAO by definition at that point. Maybe it's like social token. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're investing mm-hmm. in a single mm-hmm. person and it, that turns into a social token. And then we've already talked about all the utility of a social token where right. you can you can add utility to it in different ways. You have, it's way more liquid, uh, way more transferable than stocks. You have way less red tape. So there's added value there and just the ownership in that person becomes uh, upgraded to the 21st century and using blockchain. So Got in it. my opinion, it might not even be called a DAO at that, <laughs> at, at that point. It might be a social token. Um, but it, yeah. at that, it, there might be something like a visionary leader who then has a core team and the core team's all rolling up to that person. I mean, that's going to be similar to something like Apple. Um, Steve Jobs had right-hand man, had a core team, everything like that, that they, they listened to, even though he was like my way or the highway, he still had advisors there. Yeah, it, we like to look at Steve Jobs in a silo, but the thing is there were tons of mm-hmm. people uh, influencing him. Yes. Uh, regardless of the facade that he might've put on and saying like, it's my way or the highway, everyone's influencing his, his opinions. And that's where I think it might technically be a DAO that even though there's this visionary leader, let's, let's look at Wonderland, for example, Danny, right? That was very much the visionary type of leadership. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want that to taint that by any means because <laughs> that kind of blew up. Right. But you, and you have pros and cons. There. There's a test. <laughs> there is an absolutely a test there. There are examples out there, but even though Wonderland is a DAO, you had that visionary leader there where he had over 300,000 followers and people were worshiping this guy yes. on, on the level of Elon Musk. Yes. So there's pros and cons to this, but the important thing is that we test all of them and not pigeonhole ourselves and say, 100% decentralization is the way. And yes. I don't think a lot of people are, are thinking that way anymore because they're seeing the pitfalls. Mm-hmm. But we need to try a bunch of different stuff and also keep in mind, like, what is the ethos we're trying to maintain? And, and, and slowly over time, those will come closer and closer together. But yes. you, you just you have to be very clear about what's important to me, what is the ethos that I want to convey, and not lose sight of that. Because it can be very easy. Again, it's so difficult to build in a decentralized way. It can be very easy to let that trickle in, foot in the door type of thing where you get slowly and slowly more centralized and you're like, this is easier, this is easier. And it turns out to be not much different than the thing that we were trying to move away from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 100%. So we we are coming up on an uh, hour and a half. Uh, it's been, as usual, uh, an amazing conversation with you, my friend. I'm just observing now that we are already in March. And of course, we began the podcast, <laughs> I believe, in October. So six months, half of a year. And wow. here we are, half of a year, as I, I was listening to you, Alex, it's like, yes, I seem like we have kind of followed this roller coaster of being this euphoria of like decentralization to people then pulling back, 
re-looking at this and going, hmm, okay, this <laughs> maximal governance, maximal decentralization, something problematic about this, even if it wasn't being consciously articulated, we're beginning to see, I think, this huge wind shift of the wind in the space. Of course, we're this huge bear market. Folks are under stress for obvious reasons, for justified reasons. And on top of all of that, Alex, my friend, like you said, a war is going on. So mm. to, to all of our family, our forefront family out there, we're sending you our very best, sending you our, our warmest wishes and our good vibes to you. It's it's not easy right now. It's not easy uh, being alive. It's not easy navigating this world with everything that is going on. Uh, but there are good, good and worthy seeds uh, to be found in many, many places if we just look. And uh, it's most obviously here in Web3 with the amazing people that uh, I'm working with, uh, with my amazing co-host, for instance. So just wanted to take a, a quick moment just to say that um, it is difficult times right now, but I think uh, if anything, I'm I'm gathering my strength and, and just looking at the beautiful seeds that are present in this space for a better world, a more just world, a more sustainable world, because they definitely are there and just feeling very uh, grateful to have this opportunity to think through these questions often messily with you, Forefront family, and you, Alex. So grateful to to everyone. Wag me. Don't worry too much. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Wag me. All right, my friends, we will see you in the next episode and take good care. Until then, bye-bye. See ya. Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Forefront podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.